Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Recovery Talk. So today I want to talk about something called safety behaviors, what it is, how it often manifests and what it means for your recovery. So safety behaviors refers to a behavior that someone is engaging in because they are anxious in an attempt to alleviate their anxiety because the behavior feels safer in the moment, but long term it ends up worsening the anxiety. In my home country of Norway, we actually have an expression about this called it is like peeing your pants to stay warm. What happens if you do that? Well, it feels warm in the moment, but then eventually it's going to get kind of cold, right? And safety behaviors work in a similar way, where in the moment they may feel like it alleviates the anxiety somewhat, but long term it reinforces the anxiety further. And in this episode, I'll explain a bit why. So safety behaviors can exist outside of the context of eating disorders. For example, you very often see it in people with anxiety disorders or in people with obsessive compulsive disorder. Great example of the latter would be imagine someone who have obsessive compulsive disorder and one of the compulsions is around door locking and checking that the door is locked. Going and checking Did I lock the door? In the moment, it may feel like it really helps with the anxiety that they're feeling. But long term, it reinforces that pattern of constant checking behaviors. And typically, part of the treatment there would be exposure therapy. And that would mean sitting with the discomfort of the urges of, oh my god, I really feel like I should check the door, and not doing it. And instead, sitting with it. Because by doing and giving into the compulsions, you're reinforcing the cycle. In the context of eating disorders, it can sometimes be harder to identify a safety behavior because safety behaviors can exist on a continuum, right? So you can have certain behaviors that are just really obviously a safety behavior and it's very easy to spot and identify. But then typically what happens is that you have certain behaviors that are so subtle and sneaky and so ingrained that it's hard to even realize they're there. This is one of the main things that I work with with coaching clients, whether as one-on-one coaching or in group coaching. In my upcoming group coaching program, this is a huge focus and identifying the sneaky behaviors that may be super ingrained and you don't even realize is happening, target them and then rewire them. I genuinely believe that the difference between quasi-recovery and being fully recovered is the ability to really target a lot of these behaviors. Of course, there is also the very, very important aspects of refeeding, weight restoration, rest. These are absolutely essential. But a lot of times people forget to focus on the sneaky, sneaky safety behaviors. And then they wonder, why do I not feel free? Why do I still feel so trapped? not realizing that so much of their day-to-day behaviors is rooted in actually safety behaviors that is an attempt to alleviate the eating disorder anxieties. So let's start with some typical examples of safety behaviors. One thing that I see a lot when working with people with eating disorders is safety behaviors that are around alleviating the fear of one's hunger. So I've already done a podcast episode titled Fearing Your Hunger, which is about this very common fear that people with eating disorder have around their own hunger. 
And when you really unpack it, you often see that a lot of eating disorder behaviors are actually around managing hunger and a fear of being hungry or being quote unquote too hungry. You often see behaviors such as filling up on low energy foods, not allowing yourself unlimited access to food, pushing meals. The irony of a lot of these behaviors is that it actually ends up making you hungrier. The person who is banning themselves from having the cookies and instead filling up on protein bars, they're not going to be satisfied and not think about the cookie. They will keep thinking about it. And because you keep thinking about it, you're thinking, see, this is evidence that I'm actually addicted to those cookies, right? So <laughs> it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So a thing that I often ask people is, how would a version of you act that is not scared of their hunger. If you had zero fear of food and your own hunger and there was, that was not a factor, how would you eat? How would you act around food? And when we start looking at it from that perspective, oftentimes certain behaviors will come up. It will be things such as, oh, I always, for example, drink, drink a cup of tea or water before my meal. Oh, I thought it was just a preference. No, actually it is something I'm doing because of a fear that if I don't do it, I won't be, I will be too hungry and then eat quote unquote too much, right? Typical example. Or needing to have a certain amount of vegetables in your, on your plate or throughout your day. Again, not saying there's anything wrong with vegetables, right? Vegetables are good and great. And they also deserve to be respected and appreciated, right? You don't want it to be something that you're like forcing down for eating the sort of reasons. You want it to be something that you're enjoying and preparing with joy, right? So this is a typical example of a safety behavior, right? So it is something that you may be doing to alleviate a certain fear. So in the example here, fear is, what if I get hungry and I can't control it? I always need to manage my hunger. What if I get, no, no, no. And then you see that what actually happens here is that, first of all, this behavior just make you hunger. That's the paradox of it. But also what it does is that it is reinforcing the idea that your fear is something to be scared of. When you fear something and you're engaging in safety behaviors, the way that our brains work is that they go by, basically they go by what you're doing, right? Create certain loops. So every time that you're engaging in a safety behavior, in an attempt to alleviate fear and anxiety and all of these things, you're actually making it worse long-term because you're signalizing to your brain that, yeah, this is something that we have to be careful around. This is something we should fear. We do have to do all of these safety behaviors to make this safe. How can something stop being scary when you're still micromanaging it, when you're still engaging in all of these safety behaviors? I'll give a personal example. So I am quite claustrophobic. I do not like being in cars. I do not like being in packed trains elevators, anything that's really like crammed, I get really uneasy, especially if I feel like I can't get out of it and I can't escape. So this is something I'm a lot better with now, but I noticed in the past that if I knew that I had a car ride coming up, I would start engaging in a certain set of behaviors in an attempt to alleviate my anxiety beforehand. And a lot of these behaviors were around trying to control the situation. So for example, if I knew that I was going to drive from A to B, when I say drive, I mean being a passenger because I don't have a driver's license yet, but you know. Anyways, if I knew I was going to drive from A to B, what I would do is I would like look up the map and check out the road, seeing what is the travel time going to be at this hour? What is the travel time at a different hour? Where, where is the route take us? 
And I would do all of these things beforehand because I felt like if I was in control over the situation, it would be easier to manage. What actually happened is that my brain would be wired to, oh yeah, you're going to do something scary now, right? And then I would spend the whole day being absolutely terrified because I was signalizing to my brain that, hey, we got something really scary coming up, by the way. So what felt like it was something that would calm me down, which was basically trying to micromanage the situation and figure out the exact route, na na na, actually ended up making me more anxious. And I know it made me more anxious because on the days where there, for example, was a situation where we had to maybe make a drive and I didn't have any time to really think or prepare, which is like, okay, we're gonna go drive now, right? For some reason. Those days I was less anxious because I haven't primed my brain into anxious mode, right? This is not to say that any kind of anti-anxiety behaviors before a scary event are always inherently bad. For example, if maybe someone has something scary coming up and they think, okay, I'm going to take it a bit easy today. I'm going to try and focus on deep breaths, kind of having a calm day, maybe not chugging down coffee this specific day so I don't get heart palpitations. That's fine. That is just kind of common sense. But be mindful of micromanaging behaviors as safety behaviors. And I say this because micromanaging behaviors is a super common safety behavior I see people with eating disorders having, where they think that if they can just predict and micromanage the situation and any potential outcome, their anxiety will go away. When actually, this is what makes them more anxious. Typical example of how this could manifest in eating disorder recovery would be maybe you know that you're going to eat out this evening, right? And then your eating disorder thinks, oh, we just need to be prepared. And then you go and you spend endless time looking at the menu, planning, reading up all the ingredients, all the dishes, preparing for any potential outcome that can happen. And then you realize that this is not actually helping because again, you're priming your brain to be anxious. You're reinforcing the idea that this is a scary, dangerous situation that you need to somewhat prepare for almost like you're going to go out to war. And then let's look at a different situation. Maybe you're home and then your friend comes by and your friend brought pizza and it's a fear food, right? Yes, it will be scary, but notice how you didn't prime your brain into anxious mode. You were just kind of thrown into the situation and that can actually instead be very, very helpful. I understand everyone is individual and I know for some people being a little bit prepared beforehand can actually be helpful and if they're not prepared they just end up not doing the thing. So I will say there is individual differences here, but this is just a general phenomenon that I often see and that is that when there is a scary situation coming up, people are sometimes engaging in behaviors beforehand that reinforce the fear. A very typical example to use that eating out situation that will often, people will often do is not just things such as like reading up the menu and all of that, but it can also be things such as eating less before you're going to go out for dinner, right? And that can be in a way that, oh, if I just eat less or if I maybe not necessarily less, but you're sticking more to your safe foods, you think that that will somehow make the dinner easier. But overall, you're just making the situation a lot scarier because you are, on the bigger picture, you're reinforcing to your brain that food is something scary, eating is something scary, we need to be very around this, we need to be careful. And how can you then rewire the fear when you're doing the exact opposite by engaging in safety behaviors beforehand that worsen it? So what would then be the better call in this situation? It would be to go on as normal, to resist the urge of trying to micromanage the situation by all of these little sneaky things that you're doing, and instead just kind of jump into it and go on like you would any other day. 
And if you have those urges to engage in restrictive sneaky behaviors, do the opposite actions. Unfortunately, I often see that within more traditional eating disorder treatment, safety behaviors are often missed because they can be so subtle, right? Could be something like maybe you had a meal and you always go for a walk after, let's say, your dinner. And that can, on a surface level, that can just be, oh, you just want to get some fresh air and that's fine. But then you see that underlying is actually that you feel a lot of guilt for the dinner and you feel like that walk becomes a way to alleviate that guilt. But of course, what happens long term is that you're signalizing to your brain that eating is a shameful behavior and you must compensate after. And this is why it's so important to be honest with yourself by your intentions. So for example, like I said, with eating out, there are cases where looking at up the menu beforehand can be fine. Maybe you're someone who have a severe nut allergy and you just want to make sure that there is something you could eat at the restaurant. But it is the intention behind the behavior that matters here. And how do you feel if you don't engage in X or Y behavior? This is another very good indicator to figuring out if it is you or the eating disorder. That walk, for example, if you don't go for that walk, do you feel anxious or guilty or stressed? This is such an important point. And in regards to movement, this is something I recently discussed with fellow coach Luisa, where we did an episode, it would be a few episodes ago, about compulsive movement and eating disorders. And I wrote an article on this over at Substack, letsrecover.substack.com, the other day, called The Mental Benefits of Healing Your Relationship with Movement. And there I was saying that it is the intention that matters, right? So many times people get so hung up in whether or not something is physically harmful, which it can be, but in some cases it may not be. But this does not mean that you shouldn't focus on it. Like there's no physical harm in looking up the menu before you're going to a restaurant. But mentally, does it reinforce the eating disorder or does it reinforce your healthy self? So then inadvertently, it can have physical negative effects. Sometimes it can be hard to identify if something is a safety behavior or if something is just a reasonable support behavior. And sometimes these can overlap. Sometimes one can be a support behavior in the beginning and then become a safety behavior. So it is a little bit hard sometimes to differentiate, but I'll try and explain a little bit. Support behavior is something that you're doing that actually helps and supports you to do the thing that you're scared of. It is not necessarily something you're 100% dependent on. It is just something that gives you that little that little boost, right? So for example, maybe you have something coming up that you're quite scared about. So you drop an email to your coach just for some reassurance. This can become a support behavior, but it can also develop into a safety behavior if you develop a pattern that you can only do something if you've gotten reassurance from your coach beforehand. And why is that a safety behavior rather than a support behavior? Well, it's a safety behavior if it actually does not necessarily bring you forward in terms of your recovery and independence. A support behavior is like a springboard, right? It's something that you do and it actually leads you forward towards independence, autonomy and recovery. Whilst a safety behavior is something that kind of keeps you just going in circles. It is something where the more you do of the safety behavior, the more you want to do of it. So the whole point is that a safety behavior is something that is not productive. It's something that long-term creates more damage, whilst a support behavior is something that actually helps. It is not something that damages you. But I do understand and acknowledge the line can be a bit blurred and it can sometimes be a bit hard to know which is which. 
And sometimes maybe in, for example, earlier recovery, someone need more, maybe, for example, they need their parent to take a very involved role and really push in terms of the meal. But then there comes to a point in recovery where they know that this behavior is no longer really needed or really productive and hanging on to it will instead become a safety behavior where you're taking away your own autonomy, where you're thinking, oh, I will only finish my meal if my parent is encouraging me or is there to support me doing so. So behaviors can evolve. Our needs can evolve. Perhaps there was a point in your early recovery where looking up the menu was the only way that you would actually go out to eat. But now you know that you're just doing that behavior because it feels nice and comfortable rather than this is something you absolutely need. So be mindful of this as well. And don't hold on to behaviors or support needs that you know that you have outgrown. When it comes to safety behaviors, they don't necessarily only show up in food. They can also show up in body image. So a good example is body checking. Body checking is often a behavior that can become very automated and very ingrained. It can become so habitual that you may not even realize that you're doing it. Oftentimes behind body checking, there is a need to control, a need to micromanage to feel like you're in control over a certain situation. It goes a bit back to what I said, right? You may feel that by constantly measuring your body, whether weighing it or doing certain hand movements to check how things are and how things are <laughs> feeling, you feel like you are controlling your body. And then you're wondering, why do I not feel okay with my body? Why am I not able to embrace the bodily changes and let my body find a set point? Well, you're engaging in all of these behaviors that is sending the exact opposite signals to your brain. Eventually, you will have to let go of those behaviors and let go of that control. And only that can really signalize to your body that, okay, this is not something we're focusing and worrying about anymore. The more time and energy you are giving something, the more your brain will register that this is our priority. This is what we're focusing on. That's just how our brains work. So this is why it's so important to have that self-awareness and to be very, very mindful of how this shows up in terms of your behaviors. You can't necessarily always control your thoughts. Yes, you can catch yourself when you're going in an overthinking loop and be like, okay, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to focus on something else now. But a lot of times trying to directly control your own thoughts and feelings is just going to end up you beating yourself up for thinking or feeling a certain way. Instead, keep an eye on how behavior is impacted. Okay, you have all of these thoughts about your body and you hate your body and you're scared of weight gain and no, no, no. Okay, fine. But how does this show up in terms of your behavior? Focus on what you actually can control. And your behavior is something that you have more control over than you often like to believe. I know this is difficult, especially when it is things that you're doing that are so ingrained that you don't even realize that you're doing them. And this is where, you know, having some form of support is very, very helpful. Working with someone can help you identify it. But chances are that even today, you probably can immediately think of a few things that you know that you're doing that are safety behaviors from listening to this episode. And I want to encourage you to try and really take this into consideration. What does these behaviors lead you towards? Like, what is the long-term outcome of constantly engaging in these behaviors? Will it really help the fear, the underlying fear, or will it just strengthen it? And how can you instead implement opposite actions? If you didn't have this underlying fear, how would you act around your body, around food, around movement? And then act more in alignment with that. We become who we repeatedly act like. 
So if you are repeatedly acting like someone who is terrified of weight gain through your actions, then of course that fear is just going to be reinforced. But if you are acting as if you are not scared of certain foods, you are not scared of weight gain, not saying you don't, I'm not saying you necessarily have to feel this way. I'm saying if you acted as if, then chances are you would actually notice that you have less of those fears, right? That is the paradox of it. Yes, this is a little bit like fake it till you make it. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying you should not be authentic or open to the fact that, yeah, these things are hard. I am more talking in terms of your actions. And I know that for a lot of people, this can be a very helpful reframe, right? could be something like, okay, yeah, I am really scared to go out and eat with my friends, but I'm going to do it because I want to be the type of person that is able to do that and enjoy it. And maybe I won't enjoy it now because I'll be so terrified that the whole dinner would just be about getting through it. But I know that I will have to do it scared multiple times before I can do it calm. Or maybe you're even able to find some enjoyment within all the fear, right? We do know excitement and anxiety, they are very similar in the body. Act in alignment with the version of yourself you want to move towards. Once you're doing that, your life will go a lot easier. In not just in the arena of eating disorder recovery, but in so many other arenas as well. And when I say this, I'm of course rever- referring to your true your true self, right? I'm not referring to the version of yourself that your eating disorder wants you to be. If you check out the episode I did last week, I was talking a bit about how an eating disorder can affect how you feel about the world, about yourself, and how about other people. The episode is called How an Eating Disorder Impacts Mood and Emotions. So do check that out if you're a bit confused, like, oh yeah, but I want the future version of myself to be super skinny. So that means I should engage in eating disorder behavior right? Chances are that's not really your true self-talking. Safety behaviors may make you feel better in the moment, but long-term they are just reinforcing the anxiety. Instead of engaging in a safety behavior, sit with the discomfort. This is so, so, so important for recovery. You can't recover and just avoid all discomfort. That's not going to happen. That's not really recovery. Instead, you're going to have to accept that, yeah, there will be anxiety, fear, guilt, doubt, all of these things. And that's okay. It is not a sign that you're doing something wrong. It's a sign that you're doing something right. So whatever it is that you're avoiding and fearing, do the thing. Okay, guys, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you are enjoying this podcast, feel free to leave a rating and also share with a friend or share with someone who maybe need to hear this right now. For more articles and bonus podcast episodes, head over to letsrecover.substack.com. And you can also check out my website, letsrecover.co.uk for coaching, group coaching, one-on-one coaching. I do currently have a waitlist for coaching and my waitlist is closed, but I am doing group coaching. Uh, so if you're interested in that, you can join in. We are starting in two weeks. And you can also give me a follow on Instagram at Amalie Lee or at letsrecover.co.uk. Have an amazing day and week ahead, guys.